Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Autoimmune encephalitis and other autoimmune neurologic disorders are increasingly identified causes of unexplained dementia and other neurologic symptoms. Their prompt recognition is important as these disorders can often be successfully treated with steroids or more specific immunotherapies before permanent neurologic damage develops. In today's episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing treatable autoimmune neurologic disorders that should not be missed. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Amy Konchak join me for today's conversation. Dr. Konchak is a neurologist in the Mellon Center for Multiple Sclerosis Treatment and Research in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Amy, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you very much, Dr. Stevens. So, Amy, uh, let's start off today's conversation and discuss the current state of autoimmune neurological disorders within the field of neurology and how it has developed over time. Thank you. Um, I mean, autoimmune encephalitis had many great advances uh, in the field of autoimmune neurology and particularly for autoimmune encephalitis in the last 20 years. Uh, Firstly, in recognising the clinical phenotype of autoimmune encephalitis and then further delineating the associated autoantibody biomarkers. We've now developed a greater understanding also of the pathogenesis of many of these disorders. For example, NMGA encephalitis we understand has an association with ovarian teratoma, but more recently we've understood that there is an association with herpes simplex virus infections, suggesting post-viral induced autoimmunity. Studies of HLA associations have identified that there may be distinct immunogenetic pathways for LJ1 and CASPER2 encephalitis. And further, by studying more recent developments of biological therapies such as immune checkpoint inhibitors, we're gaining important insights into the development of central nervous system autoimmunity. There are other disorders uh, as well under the umbrella of autoimmune neurology, which include the more atypical uh, demyelinating disorders such as neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder or myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein-associated disorders. For NMOSD, this was first recognised probably 20 years ago now, but more recently we've seen great advances in the management of this disorder. There's recently been three randomised clinical trials of new immunotherapies which have shown very good efficacy, and these will hopefully lead to improved management of NMOSD with fewer relapses. I mentioned also MOG antibody-associated disorders. These are increasingly recognised and understood um, and are often associated with ADM, optic neuritis, myelitis and encephalitis as a clinical phenotype. And there's been a huge amount of research in the recent years uh, looking at the characterising the clinical, radiological and serological phenotypes of these disorders, as well as looking at clinical outcomes and response to immune therapies. So, Amy, what the uh, folks that aren't at the Cleveland Clinic don't realize is that uh, monthly you've been running a very interesting uh, neuroimmunology encephalitis uh, 
conference where we've discussed cases on service. Uh, you mentioned the LGL-1. Uh, there was an interesting case of the uh, fascio brachial seizures recently. Can you talk about that disorder a little bit? Sure, yeah, that's right. We did recently discuss this in our um, case conference um, and we talked a lot about the fascio-brachiodystonic seizures and the clinical presentation, how these seizures may involve even just subtle movements of the of the hand or arm. Uh, these can be dystonic-like movements. They can also involve facial movements. And these movements are often so subtle at the beginning and can also have normal EEGs, so there can be no epileptic correlate in some of these cases, which can make it difficult to initially recognise them. Uh, but this is a, a very pathognomonic finding for the LJ1 encephalitis. We also reviewed in that case conference that a lesser common phenotype of these patients was recently seen in some of our patients with pilomotor seizures, so where they have basically goosebumps and the patient we discussed had had some bradycardia episodes as well, which is an interesting uh, phenotype uh, which is seen less commonly but is described in LJ1 encephalitis. So some patients have a very classic presentation, but you know how it is when you're on service and the residents come up to you and they say, hey, I think this patient may have uh, some type of autoimmune neurologic disorder. Um, what's the workup that we should do for these patients? Should we just order a big panel of tests? What's the sequence? How, how can you help our listeners? Okay. Well, I think that the first um, test that we often do is an MRI. And typically, a common finding for limbic encephalitis would be the T2 flare abnormalities in the mesial temporal lobe. So that would be a, a first step test, an EEG to look for either epileptic activity or, or sort of asymmetrical slow wave activity is another routine test that we would do to start with. Spinal fluid evaluation is key and we can look for things like a pleocytosis, protein, elevated IgG index and oligoclonal bands. And of course, the very specific neural autoantibodies can be tested both in CSF and in serum. And uh, the panel that we typically use here is the panel that is sent to Mayo Clinic, the autoimmune encephalopathy panel, which has a comprehensive uh, test panel for the most common neural autoantibody biomarkers. So that would be the, the standard workup to start with uh, for a patient that's considered to possibly have encephalitis. So if I look at the CSF and there are no oligoclonal bands and the tortolots are not showing IgG synthesis, is it then not an autoimmune encephalitis or we can't say that? Um, I think that's a really good question. Uh, there are, uh, although IgG index and bands uh, typically tells us that there is intrathecal synthesis of IgG and and indicates CNS autoimmunity, there are cases that are negative. So I think that we just talked about LJ1 encephalitis um, and we did have some patients last week that we discussed that didn't have IgG index or bands um, present. So I think that if you have a strong clinical suspicion, it's still worth looking further, even if this initial spinal fluid is negative, to look further for with the neural autoantibodies and, and some of the other workup I mentioned about the MRI and EEG. So let's move to treatment. So I see a patient, I have a strong clinical suspicion based on the disorder that they're presenting with. How soon should I start treatment and what should I use? Typically, the, the first treatment would be intravenous methylprednisolone. Typically, we'd give a gram for five days, and we would give that early on um, once the diagnosis is, you know, essentially once you have some of the, you know, a phenotype that 
is strongly suspicious for encephalitis, that would be the time, you know, as early as possible to start steroids is associated with better outcomes. After the steroids, uh, additional acute immunotherapies can be considered, and these would include IVIG and also plasma exchange. Uh, these would all be considered within the, you know, the first week or two of a patient presenting uh, as acute immunotherapies. So if you're sending off the male panel, how long does it take to come back? Roughly takes between one and two weeks okay. to return. You know, I think we always teach the residents if you have a high index of suspicion, a couple of weeks is brain tissue. So uh, always interested in considering treating earlier rather than delaying for sure. Yes, completely agree. So since we're in the time of COVID, I was on a hospital service about a week and a half ago and saw a young lady who presented with an acute syndrome that really on imaging showed a enhancing lesion uh, that looked like a demyelinating lesion, and she had received the COVID vaccine the day before. There are a couple of other spots there, and the question was, was this an ATEM or was this an unmasking of uh, MS that was not yet presenting? Have you seen any of this? Have you read anything on this? Uh, Thoughts? I haven't seen personally any of these cases, but there are descriptions in the literature of uh, demyelination and also of uh, MOG-associated disorders, which I mentioned earlier, and of encephalitis in the literature, small numbers. Um, so I think it's um, something to consider. You know, I like the fact that I used to just think it was NMO, but I'm willing to learn new things, and I'm glad it's now a spectrum disorder that's there. Uh, and that we're moving forward and uh, looking for the great things that you're doing uh, as time goes on. So let's switch gears. Uh, congratulations on your lead authorship on a recent uh, JAMA neurology article that had to do with rheumatologic therapies. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yes. So uh, this is a study I did uh, at Mayo Clinic, and we had seen within the uh, autoimmune multiple sclerosis clinic several patients uh, over a considerable time frame, but there were fairly consistent cases of patients with autoimmune disorders that presented with either demyelination or other inflammatory events. And the question was raised often in our clinical meetings, was this associated or not with their TNF-alpha inhibitor use? And so we designed a study to try and examine this question uh, and we took a large cohort of patients that had both rheumatological and also inflammatory bowel disorders. And within that cohort, we identified patients that had CNS inflammatory events and then matched them age and sex to a cohort from the same population and then looked to see what proportion of patients had been treated with TNF-alpha inhibitors. And interestingly, we did find that there was an association with TNF-alpha inhibitor use uh, and the development of these inflammatory events. And the majority of patients that were treated with TNF-alpha inhibitors were treated within one year. I think 90% of those that had been treated were treated within one year of developing their inflammatory disorder. So it wasn't necessarily a remote uh, event. Uh, so it, it's complicated because these patients also have a clear predisposition to autoimmunity. They already have one autoimmune disorder. Uh, so it is a, a difficult area to study. Um, but we concluded that 
it should be considered when a, when you're evaluating a patient, particularly one of these autoimmune patients that is on these therapies, it should be considered a medication history is vital to be reviewed and to consider whether there is in that patient a history of TNF-alpha inhibitor use and an association. But I think it's also important to remember that these are highly effective therapies. So we're not necessarily you know, recommending that people stop these highly effective therapies in any way because they're you know, very effective therapies for those disorders. And these events are probably extremely rare outcomes. So let's go back to treatment. And I'm going to try and get off the autoimmune nihilism train and talk about outcome. Tell us some success stories, uh, patients that are treated early and did well. Not everybody does poorly with these disorders, right? For sure. In fact, um, you know, amongst my current cohort of patients, we have several patients, quite a few that have LJ1 encephalitis, for example, that have done very well with steroids. Some of them have had also additional um, additional immunotherapy, for example, rituximab, but they've done very well um, and have improved in their cognition. Uh, the fasciobrachial dystonic seizures have settled down with the immunotherapy, and some of them have even returned to work. I have one patient that has returned to work within three months of receiving immunotherapy. Additionally, also with NMDA encephalitis, which is considered to be in some cases often a severe encephalitis, I have quite a few patients that have been treated very promptly within the hospital service. Seizures have settled down, um, and you know, within a year, I've got again, several young patients that have all returned to study or work. And actually, I've got a patient that's completing a degree at present only one year after having NMDA encephalitis. So some very good outcomes um, as a result of prompt immunotherapy in the acute setting, probably, um, you know, and as well as some longer-term immunotherapy. Excellent. I think it's just... um puts the onus on us to be uh, excellent clinicians, identify the disorders and initiate the treatment early enough. So I really appreciate that. What do you see on the next frontier in autoimmune neurology research and maybe even things that we're doing here at the Cleveland Clinic's Mellon Center? Well, I think there's so much to be done for autoimmune neurology. It's a it's a new field. There's, there's so many different areas from the bench right to the bedside that need to be uh, the research research questions that need to be addressed. So at the Mellon Centre, the focus of the Mellon Centre is very much on uh, comprehensive clinical care and providing patients with the opportunity to be part of observational clinical research as part of that routine clinical care. And so what that means is when patients come to see us, they get comprehensive uh, clinical evaluations and that data is used as part of clinical studies. So I think for some of the questions that really need to be looked at now, now that we have have very good diagnostic markers and there is greater recognition of these disorders, I think the next questions are about how to identify what is the best treatment, how long should patients be treated for, how can we predict outcomes or define a clinical outcome, uh, how should we monitor patients? Are, are there good biomarkers of disease activity? You know, for example, in multiple sclerosis and NMOSD, now we've seen that there are several good CSF biomarkers to demonstrate clinical relapse. Can we objectively define clinical relapse using some of these uh, biomarkers, uh, which would help us a lot uh, in our longitudinal follow-up of our patients? Uh, so these are the kind of clinical questions that I'm very interested in, and I think that the Mellon Centre will be offering for our patients uh, into the future. Well, Amy, thank you very much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and insights and wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Stevens. 
This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.